This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is August 29th, 2020. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. This is Joe Romano, and I actually worked at WRHU starting in 1989. And then I left WRHU officially, I believe it was 2001. So I was there from undergrad and then I got my master's degree at Hofstra as well. And then actually continued to work there for a year or so after uh, completing my master's degree. Uh, What shows did you host or work on or produce while you were at WRHU? I'm glad that you asked that question. Um, I don't know when we got these, but I want to give credit to Sue Zizza because I'm assuming it was her idea. When we graduated as undergraduates, we got plaques and the plaques had a full rundown of what we did while we were working at the radio station as undergraduates. So I have very specific information I can give you. Um, In 1989, when I started at the station as a freshman, I did the classics from Hofstra. Uh, Then from 1990 to 1991, I was producer of a show called Rock Solid 88.7. And from 1990, till 2001, for over 10 years, I was producer of a show called 10 at 10. Um, And that was a show that aired at, uh, I believe it was at 10 o'clock on Friday nights as part of the Rock Solid uh, program. Uh, From 91 to 92, I was co-host of Good Morning Hofstra, and my co-hosts were Sarah Sterling and Vanessa Kalinowski. And then uh, from 1992 to 93, I was an associate producer with, uh, with Good Morning Hofstra as well. So I think that pretty much encompasses a lot of my responsibilities. Um, I did some election night coverage for Hofstra News. Um, uh, my buddy, John Booty and I, uh, did a couple of, uh, women's basketball games, uh, during intercessions when people were understaffed. So I had a little experience in the sports department. So got to touch on a bunch of stuff over my time at the station. And, uh, if memory serves, I think you, uh, did a few jazz shows as well. That's very true. Yeah, that's not on my uh, that's not on the plaque that I was reading off of when I was giving you that information. Yeah. Yes, we did classic jazz eighty eight seven also, uh, and I think that show used to air in the middle, the middle of the day. That was mm-hmm. sort of the drive time show. Did you uh, work on any uh, community affairs programs or weekend programming? Did you do any engineering for the uh, community volunteers? I'm sure I I'm sure I engineered for Basha. I'm sure I engineered for uh, Teddy Savalas, uh, it to f- just but not on a regular basis. More, more as a fill-in rather than uh, as a regular uh, gig. I'm trying to think of who else I might have done. Uh, there was a doo-wop show. There were two guys who did a doo-wop show that I had to engineer for, and that was that was much more challenging because now they came in with their little 45 records and those things were, you know, you, you, you were moving through those pretty fast. Um, Mm -hmm. but not on a, not on a regular basis, but I did have some experience working with, uh, working with those people, um, and really did enjoy that experience. Okay. And I think you already mentioned most of this, but, uh, you held a couple of titles or positions at WRHU officially. Yes. Uh, you know, the, the one that I would say uh, about which 
I was most proud uh, was just producing the classic rock show. Um, when I first started at WRHU, um, you know, I just had an interest in radio when I just toured the campus initially. And I seem to remember um, uh, at that time, the program director was a, a gentleman by the name of Andrew Schmertz. And the station manager was a young lady named Eileen DeCallis. And they were both very welcoming, very accepting of new ideas. Um, I knew that there was someone named Jeff Krause, but I had didn't get anywhere near Jeff uh, initially. Um, uh, uh, maybe fortunately or not fortunately uh, at the outset, uh, you know, Jeff being an acquired taste. Uh, uh, but they were very welcoming, looking for new ideas, looking for people with new spirit. And when Andrew became program director, um, we had some convincing to do uh, with Jeff Krause about doing a rock show, uh, an AOR type of rock show, because the idea of WRHU community radio, trying to provide alternative programming that you're not going to get on the regular radio station, et cetera. Uh, the argument that we used at the time, if I recall, was just that the AOR format was still very, very popular in commercial radio and that doing a rock show for a few hours a night would be good training ground for people graduating and going into that type of, um, uh, uh, format, uh, looking to do that maybe professionally. Um, and after sort of banging away at it for a while, um, I think we started the rock show in 1990. And then the gentleman who was, was the, um, I'm trying to remember, I think his name was Dan Kennedy. Dan Kennedy decided to move on to a different school. And then Andrew Schmertz approached me with being the producer of it. Um, and that was a great, really a great experience, you know, making the clock, deciding what we were going to play, what we were not going to play, what works, what doesn't work and so forth. So that was great. Um, I really enjoyed doing the morning show as well. Uh, I thought that was really a wonderful experience, uh, also, but, um, uh, the show that I did for 10 years, uh, the 10 at 10 show was an idea that had started with one of the other people doing the rock solid show, just sort of coming up with 10 tunes that for an hour program that um, had something in common, you know, tunes that started with bands, which began with the letter D or something silly, mm -hmm. innocuous. Um, and I took the show and ran with it and decided to turn it into something uh, that tied in a little bit more of a classic rock angle where I would say, okay, well, we're calling this a classic rock show, Rock Solid 88.7, and what does it mean for rock and roll music to be classic? What does that really mean? Um, and in the early 90s, you're now playing music that comes from the 60s that's you know 30 years old, and what does that mean? Or the albums that came out in the 70s that are 20, 25 years old and people are still talking about it. Like, can we refer to Dark Side of the Moon as classic in the same way that we would refer to Mozart as classical music? Is this classic rock? So the 10 at 10 format took on a form of, I took 10 songs from a year in rock and roll history and then started to do research and back then, you know, pre-internet, now you're 
looking for resources, libraries, uh, album covers, whatever you could find to try to give people a perspective as to what was happening in the music scene, both from a commercial standpoint, from how music was being written, from uh, how artists would influence one another. Um, and I don't know where this came from. I, I it probably came from Andrew Schmertz. I'm not really sure where all of a sudden I gained the moniker of being called the resident rock and roll musicologist. So I began to mm -hmm. turn that the 10 at 10 show into that, that before playing a record, there would be a discussion of why this was significant in the development of the band or what this meant in terms of recording styles and how the Beatles went from four track recording to eight track recording and how that changed what they did uh, and those kinds of things. So it was not only playing the tunes from the year and there was some nostalgia to it, but then there was also the, uh, the idea of um, trying to bring a little bit of a historical background and a musician's perspective as well. There would be times where I would bring up uh, certain things that the, uh, and that was more for my music colleagues being a music major, things that they might appreciate as well. So as you can imagine, when you're doing a, a show that really focuses on a year in rock and roll history, you, you, and you're doing the same show for 10 years, you do run out of years really, really, mm -hmm. fairly quickly. Uh, so, uh, sometimes we'd go back and revisit another year. Um, and then in certain instances, um, uh, we, we, we would redo the script. I mean, a show that didn't hadn't aired for three years, we'd go back and maybe hit the same year again, those kinds of things. But it went on for a good, like I said, a good 10 years because I, I graduated with my undergrad, I think in 93 and stayed at the station, took a year or so off and then went back for my master's degree, which took three or four years, uh, including the thesis and so forth. So it was probably, you know, end of 99, early 2000 before I was officially done at Hofstra. Um, and then at that point, the station had moved to the, the building where I'm assuming it is now. Uh, uh, Jeff had unfortunately passed away. Uh, Bruce Avery became the uh, uh, station manager. Um, and I had a conversation with Bruce, um, as Bruce did with everybody who he spoke to when he first took over as a station manager. Uh, you know, what are your intentions, this, that, and the other thing. And and we both came to a mutual decision that, hey, you know, this this should be a learning ground. This should be a training ground. This should be an opportunity for young people to come in and have that experience on the air. And I was, I was on Friday night from 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. for 10 years. Um, and I was a music teacher. I wasn't pursuing a career in communication. So it, I think it just made, it made sense at that point, um, to try to find a college student who's willing to give up their Friday night from eight to 11 to be on the air. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, so at that point of, you know, about, I guess it was about 2000, maybe 2001, I stepped away uh, from the station at that point. So I, I want to double back to this, that you were doing a lot of this as a freshman at Hofstra radio, but I want to step back and I'd like you to paint a picture if at all possible of your first time going down to the radio station. Where was it? You mentioned uh, meeting Andrew and Eileen and eventually Jeff, but where was the station? What was your expectation? What brought you to the radio station? You mentioned a, a little bit of an interest in radio. Yeah. But as uh, you're walking in the door. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Now, I mean, my interest in radio goes back, uh, frankly, as far as I can as far as I can recall. I mean, at Division Avenue High School, where I went to high school, um, 
uh, I volunteered to read the morning announcements in the morning over the PA. And that was my job. I think I did that for at least for 11th and 12th grade, if not longer than that. And I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed sort of being on the air as it were. Um, so I had that experience when we did our senior video, um, they had asked for students to, uh, write little scripts that could be read along with the video clips that they were putting together. So for our senior video that, that came out, I wrote all of the, the different passages for, for that. And that was a, a sort of a, a, a radio type experience. So that was something that I always enjoyed, uh, doing, uh, as far as the why, uh, you know, always, I've always had the gift of the gab. I've always enjoyed, uh, talking in general, uh, and, um, uh, being able to communicate in that fashion. So it always, I, it attracted me for whatever reason, certain things intrinsically attract people. So before coming to Hofstra, I really felt like that was, uh, something that I, that I wanted to explore. You know, I, I came to Hofstra just to observed the campus. And I remember seeing a performance of the Hofstra Jazz Ensemble uh, and a Professor David LaLama, who was the jazz professor there, um, and finding him to be a really interesting and inspiring person and, and liking the vibe of the group there and saying, cool, if I get in here, like, I wasn't sure whether I was going to be a music major or what I was going to major in, but I thought that would be excellent. And then hearing, oh, they have a radio station, this would be really interesting. So I guess when we did our orientation, um, they did tours of different places and I got to tour, um, uh, WRHU, I think was under Calkins hall, uh, under bits and bites. And I don't know if bits and bites is still a Calkins hall, but that's where it was, it was down in the basement. Um, and I just found that the main office just had a, just had a good vibe. Um, I'm not exactly sure who the kind of people, again, other than Andrew and Eileen, um, at that point we had some sports guys. I, I know Steve, I think it was Goldberg, Steve Goldberg, Tony Sibilla were the sports guys. They had their area. Um, uh, it had a good vibe to it. It had a vibe. Uh, it was unkempt. It was lived in. The, 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 the vibe of the space gave you the impression that there were a lot of things going on and some are being completed and some not being completed, but there was activity happening. There was passion happening. There was, um, yeah, it, it just had, it had a good feel to it. And that's the, the best way that I can explain it. It's, it had that vibe of some of those typical, uh, old newsrooms that you see that people were in there working, people were running in and out. People had things that they were had, they had to take care of. And there was a show, there were shows that were on the air. So there was that direct consequence of it as well, of having that. So, um, yeah, it initially attractive to me, just the, 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 the whole idea of it, um, uh, from on multiple different levels. So it was one of the things that before even coming to Hofstra, just sort of touring the school and then doing the orientation was one of the things that I said, yeah, I really think I could get into this for sure. So I guess it's about the fall of 1989. You show up on Hofstra campus as an undergraduate and you go to Hofstra radio in the basement of Memorial hall and you have to do some training. You, uh, obviously you know how to talk and you've been doing that at, at the high school level, but to engineer and to announce, do you remember anything from your engineering and announcing classes that you learned and carried with you or maybe who taught them or who was in class with you? I know Eileen taught one of them. Um, and I do remember this will tie into maybe a vaguely interesting story later on, but I do remember that they were really, really stressed 
for people. It might not have been in the fall that I started to do anything on air, either engineering or on air, but it got to intercession and they needed people to do classics from Hofstra, uh, which is a common problem, I'm sure, probably still mm -hmm. to this day an issue at, at RHU. Um, so I got into doing some on-air stuff sort of while I was doing the training. Um, and some of my training might have been a little bit incomplete. But I do remember in the training um, the reality check of, you know, how bad my accent was and how much I really did need to do everything I possibly could to get as much of the Long Island out of my speech patterns um, and how much time it took uh, just comparing the way I speak now to the way I speak 20 years ago. And then listening to actually before doing this interview, I was listening to some air checks and saying, boy, I did a much better job back then of keeping that under control, of keeping it to more of a Midwestern <laughs> proper English type of thing. And then as I've gotten off the air and I've gotten back to sort of working on Long Island and just getting back to being around those people that I'm around who all speak with a Long Island accent, a lot of it's come back into my speech patterns. But that was a, that was a huge adjustment. Um, in fact, I, can I think I can remember maybe the first time I ever interacted with Jeff Krause at all. Um, I was doing classics from Hofstra and I did a break and I announced a record and I must have said something. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I remember the phone ringing, picking it up and like, you know, hello, this is Jeff Krause, you know, the typical Jeff Krause, uh, the way he would speak, that, that, that deep uh, bass voice that he had. And then, oh, did you realize that you just said this and this and this and this and that, and you have to say this, all of this, and he pronounced it the proper way. I don't remember what it was, but I just remember like, first interaction with the voice of God and going, oh boy, man, I still have a long ways to go on this. Um, so that I remember. Um, I enjoy, I mean, listen, like I said, I enjoyed the splicing of tape. I enjoy just being behind the board and putting together segments and putting together bumpers and putting together promos and things like that and having to, you know, <laughs> again, no one listening to this in modern day is going to have any idea what we're talking about, about that, you know, that, that that's how you edited it. You actually edited it. And if you messed up the edit, then that was it. You were done. So you really had to be careful in how you were taking that razor and splicing that tape and putting it together. But there was a process to it. There was something much more organic to it. Sometimes you ended up with things that you didn't plan to end up with, but it was an outgrowth of trying to do something else. And it took you into another direction. And in many ways, the other direction that it took you to was better. Um, so yeah, I, I do remember that. I remember the first time I was behind the board, it was doing the classics from Hofstra. Um, that was an easier one uh, because I think I was taking over from someone else's shift, but I do also remember the first time that I had to sign on the station. It had occurred to me when I first came in that no one actually had told me how to turn on the transmitter. <laughs> that was something we had to do back in the day. And that's like, okay, I'm the first shift on whatever time. Um, it might've been during intercession. It might not have been good morning Hofstra. So it might've been like 7am starting the classics from Hofstra, whatever it was and going into the studio and just it, we're, we're not, uh, we weren't on the air and being like, well, why are we on the air? Well, you have to turn on the transmitter. You have to do this and this and this and this. And I was like, hey, what was never taught? I was never taught to turn on the transmitter. So I thought that was, you know, an, a crazy experience. Uh, so I had a lot of those first 
first time jitters. I think the one advantage I had in doing the classics from Hofstra that first semester or so that I was doing it is that I was also a music major. So uh, I knew how to say Dvorak or, you know, whatever, Shostakovich. Those those were not problems for me in, in speaking that. So that, that really worked. Um, yeah, that was... That was it. Bracing stuff. Oh, there was one time that I put on a record that was, uh, uh, I don't know, a 20 something minute symphony because that w- was programmed. And I went to use the restroom and came back and the door was locked. Hmm. Um, I had to call public safety to let me back into the studio. And fortunately enough, the, the, the record still had enough time and public safety let me back in the studio. Uh, so that was, those were some of my earlier, um, uh, uh uh, embarrassing moments, <laughs> <laughs> not being able, not knowing how to turn on the transmitter, uh, locking myself out of the studio. Um, yeah, stuff like that. So you, you've mentioned a couple of key names, uh, several times in helping you get trained and acclimated to the radio station. Were there other people that you listened to who already had shows where you said, I, I like what they're doing or people who were welcoming and gave you good advice or, or were are there are other situations where you said, well, I don't want to do that. I know now I know more what I want to do. Who are the people who are helpful in getting you acclimated at the station? Well, uh, two, that's twofold because there were two lessons that I sort of needed to learn and I sort of learned them in opposite directions. Um, there was a guy who was doing, um, Oh gosh. He, he did the morning show with, with Andrew Schmertz. Um, and it, now his name is escaping me and I feel terrible that I don't remember his name now. Um, and they were the first people to do the morning show. They were doing the morning show in 89, 90 when I was, uh, uh, a freshman. And I found like, okay, the one thing that was really cool about Andrew on the air is that Andrew said, well, uh, I don't really purport myself as having a radio voice or a radio persona or anything like that. Andrew was just Andrew on the air. And I found that really refreshing. I found that like, oh, okay. So he's not trying to be. Now, there was also a gentleman whose name I will leave out, uh, who was on the Rock Solid show, who did not talk anything like the way he talked on the air. Just a totally different person. Um, and I found that educational as well to say, okay, you can make a decision to be your on air persona. And that's what you're going to be. You could also make a decision to say, I'm really not going to do that at all. And I'm going to be myself. So I really found that in sort of setting up that personality, that that was, um, uh, very, very interesting in terms of sort of not trying to be somebody else being completely who you are or somewhere in the middle. And the reason why I bring up this story is because I do believe that that experience at the radio station informed my work as a teacher right now. Uh, Because I believe that when I'm Joe Romano at home, I have the luxury to maybe be more introverted and uh, be a little bit more of maybe who I am in my heart, right? Whereas when I'm Mr. Romano at school, Mr. Romano at school doesn't have the luxury to be that introverted. Mr. Romano at school has to be who Mr. Romano has to be to be the most effective teacher he needs to be. 
-hmm. and finding that balance between, okay, I don't want to be phony in front of the kids, but I also have to find a balance between being completely myself. That would not be effective as a teacher and being completely over the top ridiculous to the point that the kids are like, is this guy even for real? Like, I can't even, I don't trust anything that comes out of his mouth. Uh, and finding that balance somewhere in the middle. Um, and that's, I frankly, I feel in terms of my on-air personality, if you will, I did the same exact thing. And I was influenced by uh, some of those people who were on the radio, um, you know, initially, those uh, those initial people that, uh, who, I, who I just mentioned. Um, yeah, so I just, you know, I feel like... Um, those were maybe the, 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 the earlier influences. I mean, I like the sports guys. I mean, I think uh, Tony Sibilla was uh, excellent. And I know that he ended up, ended up working professionally. I know Tony's done a lot for uh, uh, RHU uh, alumni as well. Uh, so he and I have stayed in touch. I always found that um, uh, he was always a sports guy. And he just seemed to really have a fit for it, uh, an excellent fit for it. Um, and then I also found that there were people, um, Karen Jean was a station manager at, at one point, uh, Eileen DeCallis, a station manager at one point, uh, where um, their work in radio wasn't necessarily tied to, and I would, I, with Sue as well, Susan as well, wasn't necessarily tied to them being on air, but they were very, very good at being those people behind the scenes. They were very, very good at engineering. They were very, very good at being the people that made it possible for the on-air personalities to do their job as well. So mm -hmm. another, and that's another great learning experience. One of the, one of the most wonderful people I've ever met in my life is a, a gentleman named John Booty, who mm -hmm. I believe still lives in New Hampshire now. Uh, John never, never fashioned himself as being an on-air personality uh, at all. But I do believe that when John and I worked on Good Morning Hofstra together or worked on other different projects, like John, um, we almost used that in the show that if, you know, from on the other side of the glass, John had something to contribute. It was really, really very interesting and very, very insightful and great. Uh, but John didn't necessarily want to be the on-air guy. John wanted to be the engineer. John wanted to be the the wind behind the wings of the of. of of the on-air folks, and he was tremendous at it. And one of the, I mean, just one of the genuinely most awesome people I've ever met. Period. You know, full stop. Um, so that was great. But um, yeah, and then look, um, I think Jeff Krause, for the period of time and for the extent of time that he was at WRHU, really was WRHU. I mean, that was the station that he built. And a lot of the decisions that were choices that were made over many, many decades were made under his leadership and based on his preferences. Um, uh, and he did a tremendous job. And I think one of the greatest contributions that Jeff made to the station was he made sure that the students ran the station. He made sure that like, well, look, you're a station manager, you're a program director, it's your blank, blankety blank on the line. And he had no problem telling you that. Um, and that was great. He interceded when it was necessary to inter intercede, but he felt, look, you're, you're only going to learn if you, unless you fall flat on your face. 
And then he's then 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 uh, that he'd be the first person over there to pick you up and go, "What? That was really great. How you just fell flat on your face? Wasn't that just ridiculous, man? Did you screw that up? And that wonderful? All right, so let's go fix it. You know that kind of thing. But that was his demeanor, um, and he was inspirational, uh, just in terms of his his talent that he had honed over so many years. Uh, uh, in terms of his ability to do anything on air, anything he did on air was spit and polish. Um, uh, and he, you know, some people would say that you, certain people have a voice for radio or whatever, whatever. I think Jeff did, but Jeff also honed that over many years. Mm-hmm. And I, t- I use this analogy all the time in talking to some of my students. And I, I reference the great basketball, great Kobe Bryant, that Kobe was very, very talented, immensely talented. But Kobe was also the first person in the gym every morning and the last person to leave. He also spent time working on it. And I know Jeff always worked on his craft and always took his craft seriously and never took his talents for granted. And that's also me. So that's, you know, as someone who's at the head of the station, to be inspiring in that way, uh, to hear him do a commercial read or hear him do some of the... uh, um, uh, the radio theater and things that they they had done, or listen to some of his past performances at the station. That was that was just nothing short of inspirational. Hmm. Um, I want to call back to something you were talking about earlier in in establishing the rock solid program, because I believe probably about the time you were there, that 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 prime time, that eight to eleven. I believe that may have been new age programming, and I'm trying to tie this into the into the scheduled question of like when did you feel comfortable at the station when did you as i i assume as a as a freshman feel like yeah i can propose this new program and a rationale to change the format of the radio station do you think those coincided or was it a separate moment where you thought yeah i belong here this is good it's interesting that you mentioned that because the train of thought that i'm going through right now and my experiences with jeff kraus i was an undecided major as a freshman uh, which to me seems completely ridiculous because I've been a music educator now for 27 years. And I I believe that that is so innately tied to who I am as a person that I can't really imagine doing anything else. I, I really do believe that this, this is what I was supposed to do. I was supposed to be, whether it's a high school band director or something like that, I I really do. I really believe that I found my place and I'm totally happy with that. Um, But having said that, as a freshman, that I wasn't there. And I probably wasn't there only because there's pressure, right? You do well in school, there's an expectation. So you're going to go into radio or you're going to become a teacher. There was a stigma attached to those kinds of things. Um, So I wasn't as inclined to maybe follow where my passion was so much as it was, well, I'm going to have to get a degree where I go make lots of money. And that's the definition of success. Or that's what I thought as a high school person that I was supposed to do. So I went undecided. And then beginning of my sophomore year, I became a communications major. Um, I think I was going to focus more on journalism, but I was still working at the radio station. And I remember midway through my sophomore year having a journalism assignment where I had to do an interview. Uh, and I chose to interview Jeff Krause. And that was a huge turning point because right around that time, I was being named producer of the rock show. We had gotten the rock show off the ground. Hmm. Um, Andrew Schmertz had 
I was program director and just, I remember we had a private meeting, sat down and said, look, the work that you've done over the past year, year and a half, it's been great. Um, I really do think you could take the reins over and I really think you could make something out of this. And, and, uh, I'd like to see, you know, how you do with it was feeling pretty good about myself. I was feeling like I was becoming part of the station, but to be honest with you, it wasn't really until that interview with Jeff that I had an understanding of what the station was all about because, you know, a typical college kid, ignorant college kid, not really knowing any better, having perceptions of what things are, but not really understanding a lot of the background and without going into too much detail with, with Jeff, um, you know, Jeff, what I forget how he answered. I know I do remember actually specifically, um, I gave a very generic interviewers. Well, why don't you give me some information about your background and this and this and this and this have come up very, very cocky. Like I was going to do this very cocky interview. And then I remember him just stopping me and saying, Oh, why don't you ask me some specific questions and then I'll answer them kind of thing. And I was like, Oh, so this plan that I had about this interview that I was going to be this hotshot reporter coming in and interview this person like that. It was like, it was, it was right out of a scene out of, like what Mike Tyson says about when you're in a fight, right? You, Mike Tyson has this the analogy. Everybody's mm -hmm. got a great plan until they're punched in the mouth, right? I had this great plan for this interview. I was going to ask him these probing questions about why we broadcast this stuff and why we do this and how come we don't go to formats that could be more commercial and this, that, whatever I had in my head that I thought was appropriate. And 30 seconds into the interview, I got punched in the mouth. And I was like, all right, well, you know, and we fenced back and forth for a good 45 minutes and, and Jeff answered the questions, but also came back at, at me the way Jeff would. Um, but I left that interview much stronger overall, but also with an understanding of the community service that WRHU provides and that it is not necessarily it is not a ratings driven radio station. It never was and never would be and never should be. Um, and that it's a training ground and that it is, a, like I said, it's part of community service. It's part training ground. It's part educational. It's also part, yes, we are a real radio station with real live consequences. But none of those things that I mentioned were necessarily in my head as far as how I perceived the radio station to be until I had that interview with Jeff. And that put me, set me straight. And I would say that's about midway through my sophomore year that I said, okay, now I'm working at this place and I know what I get out of it, but then I also have to look at what it gives back and what it's here to provide and what it's here for. And those things did not necessarily jive directly with what my personal goals or personal perception of what the radio station was, was to be. Um, and that was just a great, a truly memorable experience. And I remember saying to a couple of people, people saying to me, you're interviewing Jeff. I went, yeah. I said, you're going to talk to Jeff about the station. I said, yeah. And he, he agreed to, and, and then that was the other thing. Like he agreed to be interviewed. Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah. And he, they said, okay. Uh, and everyone was giving me looks like, why would you put your head in the mouth of the lion, dude? Like, what are you doing? Uh, and that was great. But it really did, you know, 
and and again, you, you, it, it's sometimes hard to get that kind of perspective. But as a twenty-year-old, you know what you thought the world was and what you thought this activity was, um, and then to be set straight that way was really great. Uh, and that's, but again, so that made me feel more comfortable. That made me help me set aside the um, hey. It's great that we provide this training ground and we do these sports programs and stuff. And it's great that we have this experience and that experience and we do the community service. But, you know, hey, for, the, for those people who listen to uh, Polka and Obedic show, uh, that's the two hours a week where they get to listen to that music that is really important to them. That's really important to their culture and really essential to. And that's 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 important stuff. And that shouldn't be taken lightly. And the learning experience shouldn't be taken lightly. So the reason we were able to get the rock thing, frankly, uh, is the argument of there being a connection to the outside world and for it to be a training ground. That was A, uh, that we really didn't have. While we had an alternative format, that was the Airwave uh, program, we didn't really have a, a, um, an AOR format. Uh, we were not going to do pop pop music, but we wanted to have something that had a tie to it. And also because the new age program did not check off a lot of the boxes, right? We, we didn't really feel that had the community service element. We weren't really getting the feedback of like, oh my God, it's so great that at five o'clock in the afternoon, when I put on my car, I can turn on a I can hear a John Coltrane record as I'm driving home. I can't find that anywhere else. That's awesome that our, this radio station has that. Um, there wasn't the same reaction with the new age show. The new age show wasn't getting that like, thank God there's three hours a night from eight to 11 that there's a new age show on. Um, and it was, so therefore there wasn't the educational component. There wasn't the community service component. There wasn't the anything. It was almost like, okay, we want to do something that nobody else is doing, but we're going to put those three hours in because nobody else is doing it. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, but that was, that was the, those were the arguments. And again, um, I think Eileen DeCalis was on board with it, but I think Andrew probably pushed for it the most with Jeff to say, this is, this is worth it. And this is why. Um, uh, and then that's why the change was made. So you alluded to this earlier, and this is usually where I, I sort of ask you to forget all the hindsight, all the experience, all the recollections that we've been talking about previously, because we have the benefit of hindsight and experience. Can you put yourself in your shoes at, at 18 years old? walking into that radio station the first time and what did 18 year old joe romano want from hofstra radio at that moment it's a really good question it's a it's a great question it's an impossible question to answer but it's a great question um i'll answer it two ways uh the first way is I think 18-year-old Joe Romano had no idea what 18-year-old Joe Romano wanted. And mm -hmm. I think that's that's truly and honestly the case uh, with so many of our young kids graduating high school, going into college. Um, and if you're fortunate enough to find people with whom you connect, um, and to a certain extent, I found that at the radio station. Um, but now having said that, 
I think we're all looking for connections. I think we're looking for a sense of belonging. I think we're all looking for an opportunity to be heard and to be accepted. And uh, I played high school hockey and I went to a couple of the first couple of summer practices for uh, uh, playing uh, hockey at Hofstra and it just wasn't going to happen. The time commitment that was involved, uh, uh, my overall level of athleticism, while it was fine for high school hockey, was not going to be uh, was not going to be fine for this. Uh, so I knew that. So I wasn't going to really find any acceptance there. Um, I wasn't a music major yet. Um, once I became a music major, frankly, I probably could have dissed the radio station at that point because that's where I really, I really found my true calling. To be quite honest with you, but but. I found at WRHU that there were people there who sort of were coming at it from the same experience. Maybe they weren't the most popular kid in class. Maybe they weren't the um, the academic valedictorians and salutatorians. Maybe they weren't the top athletes. But that didn't mean that they didn't have something to say, and that didn't mean that they didn't have something to contribute. And I found people there already working there that did have things to say and did have things to con contribute. Um, but again, you know, guys like Steve and Tony uh, that, that I mentioned, um, I'm sure they, they have athletic ability. They certainly do. I mean, I've seen, I've seen Tony hit a softball, a country mile uh, of, you know, but I feel like the reality check sets in and goes, okay, I'm not going to do that. But I know a lot about this activity and I'm willing to say something. Um, and yeah, even though you're on the air and there isn't the feedback, you get an occasional phone call with a request for a record or somebody happens to comment about something that you said, but this is before the age of iPhones. This is before the age of social media. This is in, before the age of any kind of instant connection with the outside world unless somebody picked up a telephone and called you. Uh, there was something innately satisfying to be able to turn on a microphone and know there were people listening. And they were listening to the records that you chose to put on and your comments about the records. And every so often, you know, you might decide if you were courageous enough to throw in a comment about something that might have been happening in the world. Uh, at Good Morning Hofstra, certainly more so. But but we're talking really early on, classics from Hofstra, uh, doing a rock show and throwing in an occasional comment. Uh, so it validated some of your opinions in a way. It validates your opinion in the sense that you can go in there and flip on the transmitter and now you're alive and there could be any number of thousands of people who could be listening to you at any one time. And uh, there's definitely something innately appealing about that. Um, and the anonymity of being able to say it in the cozy confines of the basement of Calkins Hall and not necessarily have to say it directly to somebody's face. Um, for someone who is introverted and someone who's not the strongest kid in, in the room and et cetera, um, that was also very, very appealing as well. I mean, I will remember... Um, uh, did you have uh, Ray Weiserak as a teacher? I did. Um, when Ray, um, we took um, advanced placement Western Civ with him. Mm -hmm. And at the end of senior year, Ray actually went up and down the row 
and complimented every student in the class. I thought it was tremendous. And to this day, it was one because he came across as very, very Jeff Krause and very tough, very, you know, tough ex ex exterior. Um, and he paid me one of the the greatest compliments that I've ever received. And one of the reasons why it was such a great accomplishment is because it was, it was sort of what I was going for. He said, uh, you know, Joe is, Joe's very, very intelligent. He said what I would describe it as a very quiet intelligent or quiet intelligence. Um, he's not going to push it on you or get up in your face or stand up in a room and shout, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he knows what's going on. He's following what's going on and he's very perceptive and he's paying attention to everything. And that really did make me feel great because all along it was kind of like, I didn't necessarily need to be the kid in school who answered all the questions, but I wanted to know all the answers to all the questions. So, you know, being on the radio sort of fits that mindset of like, no, I'm not going to be a public figure out in front, but I'll turn on that microphone once a week and I'll be able to, to speak my mind on a few things. So it really, you know, just trying to think about what I need, what I needed as an 18 year old going to a school where I didn't, I didn't know any, I mean, none of the kids from my graduating class, uh, um, uh, one of my friends went to Hofstra and then, uh, after a semester or two left, uh, and didn't attend a lot of classes. So I really didn't have a click of friends who I knew and I wasn't a majoring in anything. So I didn't have like a group of people who I was taking the same classes with. So it was still kind of, kind of isolating and the radio station helped with that. And I also think that when you are on doing any kind of public radio journalism, whatever it happens to be, I don't know whether you can do that and completely distance yourself from politics. I do think you have to have some sense when you flip on that microphone about what you say and how you say it and how you say what you say will be perceived um, or you should. And I think it, it, it forces one to pay attention to one's place in the world a little bit more than you might otherwise. Um, so that was healthy too. But I, I get, yeah, again, I mean, I, I really appreciate your question. I think it's an, it's an awesome question. Um, first and foremost, without knowing really what I wanted, I think I fell into it without really knowing what I wanted. And then now looking back on 18 year old Joe Romano, I can assume that those were kind, those were the kinds of things that I was probably looking for. And those were the kinds of things that WRHU provided for me. Joe, this was extremely entertaining and enlightening to hear your story and to, uh, hear your wisdom, uh, not only from those days in the 1990s, but, but today as well. Thank you so much. Let's, uh, let's do this again sometime soon. Sounds great, buddy.